This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, good evening, everyone. It is, uh, I'm very happy to be here at Villanova. Uh, I've always had a great admiration for this school, and it's nice to be working with the Augustinian Friars and many of you. Uh, I do a lot of work in science and religion, and of course we have now the recent encyclical of Pope Francis, issued on June 18th of this year, and it's a remarkable encyclical in many ways. Uh, he's not the first to write on ecology. Certainly his predecessors, Pope Benedict, uh, now St. John Paul II, both wrote on the greening of the earth. But I think Pope Francis brings to, um, to our attention beyond just a kind of a theologizing about creation. He, he really grapples with contemporary science in this encyclical. Uh, he, uh, he very much is uh, coming out of his own South American liberation theology uh, heritage. Now, I don't think uh, I'm preaching to the choir here when I say that the, the crisis in ecology is not new. Uh, we have been talking about this now for the last 40 years. Um, in 1990, a group of scientists came together and uh, on a joint declaration on the environment, and they said, we are close to committing crimes against creation. That is almost 25 years ago. And the fact of the matter is, not much has changed in 25 years. In fact, global warming has, in a sense, increased since then. So what Pope Francis, I think, is raising our attention to is the fact that we are near crisis level. A crisis is a deteriorating situation that, if left untended, can lead to disaster in the near future. Now, we hear this, we, have, we read about these things, and yet, you know, we're not really making significant changes in our lifestyles. Uh, I do think Pope Francis does a good job tending to what ecologists are telling us about the planet. It's overstressed. It simply cannot, um, cannot uh, endure as it is. We know that global warming is the key issue, right? We have too many carbons now uh, uh, proliferating in the atmosphere. Uh, they, they cannot be absorbed. And so the temperatures are rising. We have this kind of greenhouse effect that's enhancing. So as a result, I mean, what scientists are saying is now uh, the uh, forest fires are increasing, glaciers are melting. I was talking to someone on a cruise to Alaska, and they could not approach one of the glaciers because the glacier is now melting. Species are being extinguished, and we know that once the species are extinguished, that is it. They, are, they will not return because it has taken millions of years for those species to emerge. Uh, and so we're losing biodiversity. Uh, and of course, as Pope Francis has keenly pointed out, it's the poor who are being affected disproportionately. And so he, he raises attention to the poor, I think, in a way that merits our attention. Um, he's calling us to sustainability, and he's saying that uh, sustainability me means 
meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Now, sustainability, if we are to engage truly in sustainable living, we cannot maintain our current lifestyles, right? I think Pope Francis is now saying that in many different ways. Statistically, uh, if we look at the ecological footprint, we have a large footprint, right, in our North American lifestyle. And if everyone around the world were to live like we, we live, it would take about six planets. So we can't go on indefinitely um, into, this, into this way. Now, interestingly, um, Pope Francis is coming out of um, Argentina. And we know that liberation ecology, in a sense, was, is rooted in South, South America. Uh, in 1979, the bishops uh, of South America issued a statement in um, a, a treatise called the Ceylon Document. And in that 1979 document, they called for a preferential option for the poor. In other words, they said, as church, we simply are not to listen to the poor or give to the poor. We must make a choice for the poor. And that means becoming, uh, uh, becoming friends with the poor. In other words, making ourselves known to the poor, that the poor must be included in our decision-making, that we don't make decisions for them. We, make, we must make decisions with them if we are to engage in a future uh, that is sustainable up ahead. And I think Pope Francis is certainly um, calling us again uh, not to do for the poor, he says, but in a sense to, to become in solidarity with the poor. And uh, this is a challenge, I think, in our, um, the way our structure, our societies are structured. We have structured them in such a way that we are insulated at times from the poor, that we actually have to travel to see where the poor are because they're not in our neighborhoods. And so we have um, developed, you might say, structures of distinction, structures of separation. Uh, and so I think if we ask this question, you know, Saint, uh, Pope Francis is saying, this encyclical on sustainable living towards an ecological future is calling us to recognize this earth as our home. Now, I find that a very interesting statement. Um, he does look to St. Francis of Assisi, and I do want to say a few words on St. Francis down the road, but the question for us is, where is our true home? Is it really this earth? Because religiously, I do not think we see this earth as our true home. We have this uh, kind of scriptural idea that our true home is in heaven, and our sense of heaven is in a world beyond this one. And, and part of the problem, I think, that is built in to the ecological question is that Christianity, as, as like all world religions, is based on an ancient cosmology. Uh, our Christian doctrines are formulated 
against the Ptolemaic cosmos. And if you know anything about the Ptolemaic cosmos, it's a three-tiered cosmos. In other words, there is, um, it's geocentric. The Ptolemaic cosmos was Earth-centered, static, fixed, surrounded by the firmament of the stars. And in that kind of cosmos, thanks to Dante and others, we got ingrained with the notions that heaven is a place above, that's where our true home is, earth is here where we are as pilgrims and strangers, and hell is what we want to avoid at all costs. In 1967, the historian Lynn White wrote a paper called The Ecological Roots, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. In that paper, White, in a sense, chastised Christianity as the culprits of the ecological crisis. He claimed that of all the religions, we have been the most anthropocentric. We have, in a sense, set humans apart from the earth, and we have made all but humans um, exempt from grace. In other words, it's really all about us. God has come to save us, and who cares about this thing called earth? It's simply what I walk on and it feeds me. So he said, we Christians have developed sort of an ambivalent attitude toward nature. You know, on one hand, we're all for flowers and trees. On the other hand, our consciousness, you know, is, you know, will God love me and will I go to heaven? You know, will, will I go to, you know, with God for all eternity. So White says we have become like pilgrims and strangers. And I think that ambivalent attitude toward the earth still persists because our cosmology retains sort of its old construct, its old Ptolemaic construct. We have also, White said, been very sin-centered, sin and guilt. No, I don't know about you, you don't look like sin and guilt people, but, you know, uh, especially after the Protestant Reformation, right? The Protestant Reformation is sort of even further that distance between the human person and creation, because now uh, in that Reformation, it became the human person standing under the judgment of God in need of God's grace. So our whole focus, I think, you know, um, from the Middle Ages on was, you know, how can I be saved? You know, how do I, how do I obey God's command so that I can live with God for all eternity? Who is thinking about our choices for water or our, our choices for the earth? Who is thinking that, gee, if I cut down a few trees to build, to build a house, it's going to make a difference to some ecological species? We certainly had um, none of this in our, in our thinking. Uh, now let me just put my, I have, you wouldn't believe this, but my PC decided to update while I've been talking to you. Um, because that's the kind of world we live in, right? So I'm going to keep on with my spiel here and um, actually tie into the, to the slides that I have. There we are. Oh, great. So we have not been really conscious, and this is why I think uh, Pope Francis does have something to say to us and why we're listening. Uh, because he has raising explicit awareness to the earth. But there's also something else going on in La Dauto Si that I think is important to note here. I think he is holding up 
a type of theology that moves beyond a, a simple salvation theology. He is, in a sense, beginning with creation. If you open Laudato Si, he begins with the earth, with creation. He's not beginning with the human person. And in that respect, he's very, I find him very Jesuit. I find him very Ignatian. And I do find him very Franciscan in his theological approach to the question of ecology. So I feel very at home being a Franciscan talking about a Jesuit. And what does he do? For one thing, he brings together creation and incarnation. Now that may not seem like much to you, but we have kept these doctrines quite separate. We have a doctrine of creation. Oh, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be day, and there was day. God made flowers and plants. Genesis. Oh, and then God made this beautiful creation, but, but, but what happened? Well, we had two humans in it, Adam and Eve, and, and the story goes downhill from there, right? And we had sin enter in, and we need to be redeemed. So now we have a doctrine of incarnation. God had to send the Son to redeem us from that sin. Pope Francis is not there. What he is saying is that we have this good creation that God has created and is creating, and the whole thing is incarnation from the beginning. We call this, and this doctrine has been with us for a long time, the primacy of Christ. That Christ is first in God's intention to love and to create, whether or not sin ever entered into this creation. Um, and that idea of the primacy of Christ really reverses things. That it, this is not a rescue theology. Christ is not, Jesus doesn't come to rescue us from a fallen world. Rather, Jesus really is the reason for every season. That this whole creation is, in a sense, made for the Christ. It is made for God's dwelling in love. That's what this creation is for. And Pope Francis points in that direction. And then he goes on to say, here he, I think, taps into another Franciscan theme uh, from Duns Scotus, the doctrine of individuation. In other words, every single thing, whether it's a bumblebee or a leaf or a tree or a human person, everything has inherent dignity, has intrinsic worth. There is nothing that's brute matter. There's nothing that's just trivial. It's not like, who cares about this tree? You know, who cares about this, this plant? Everything is created out of the infinite love of God and bears that love in its unique being. And he, he points um, his finger on that kind of individuation. Now saying that, I think with Pope Francis, although he doesn't say this explicitly in the encyclical, but the good news, the gospel, begins with creation. It does not begin with the human person. It begins with this good world that is our home, this world of nature. And so he's saying we need to shift our minds. We are on this kind of unbridled path, this path of unbridled um, you know, quest for power and money and unbridled growth. But we have no idea what we're growing into. 
that's the thing. We have this kind of blind path of unbridled growth. And so he says we need to, in a sense, shift our thinking from technological. In other words, uh, this kind of uh, unbridled technology where it just seems newer, faster, more efficient, and better to an ecological thinking. I think it's the gospel question, who is my brother and my sister? Who am I related to? And I think Pope Francis is saying, if we only limit that answer to, you know, uh, my neighbor or the person I see, he says, we are missing, we are missing out on the, on, on the fullness of Christ. All creation, every creature, uh, in his view, is our brother and sister. But I want to go back to this question of home because I think it's a key one for us. Now that I have my notes, I can do this better. Um, again, I mentioned uh, Lynn White's thesis that Christians have been ambivalent to creation, that we have excluded the natural world from the realm of grace, that you know only we are on this path to God and not nature itself. And of course, on top of that, I think we have been preoccupied with the four last things, heaven, hell, judgment, death. And I think we have sort of structured our ways of life, you know, around those four last things. Will I get to heaven? Can I avoid hell? How will I be judged? And how can I avoid death? Or what is death? Or what's going to happen after death? I always tell people, I really don't know since I haven't died. <laughs> Now let's, that's sort of a, a span of the big picture. I want to step back for a moment and say, did this ecological crisis that we, what we find ourselves facing, did this begin in the 20th century? It's not a, it's a rhetorical question. No way, thank you. I would say this crisis that we find ourselves in began in the 16th century. I would say that it began when, after the high Middle Ages, with our, our beautiful medieval synthesis, when people like Nicholas Copernicus and then Tycho Brahe discovered that we do not live in a geocentric cosmos, that we live in a heliocentric or sun-centric cosmos, that things began to change, literally. And that's where our crises began. Now you think, why do you say that? That's what you're looking at me with that question. I see it. I say that because we have developed an understanding of our Christian faith based on a particular cosmology that is static and fixed. When heliocentrism was discovered, when it was discovered that we are not fixed, we are actually moving around the sun, the church said, we're not going to move. We're going to stay where we are. I mean, the symbol of that is the Galileo affair, right? Galileo, who said, you know, who really confirmed the Copernican universe by saying, yes, it really is a heliocentric universe. And the church said, I'm sorry, Galileo, home forever. You're homebound forever. No text or tweeting or emails, you know. And so that's the beginning of the rift between science and religion with the discovery of heliocentrism. 
And we have been grappling ever since that time with a world of change. I think the, the situation exacerbated with Rene Descartes and the separation of uh, mind and matter. Descartes, I, I think of Descartes as a neurotic French mathematician philosopher, you know, who is Jesuit trained. If you're Jesuit trained, you'll probably be neurotic, you know. <laughs> and he was, how can I know anything for certain? How can I know the certainty of God if, indeed, this is a changing world? So Descartes stripped the, the natural world of any sacred meaning and placed that search for God in the self-thinking subject. By doing that, he basically left the natural world to be brute matter. It was do with it what you want. You can cut it up, slice it up, dice it up. It, doesn't, it has no inherent meaning. And following Descartes, Newton built on that a world of lawfulness of brute matter. And, you know, with the idea that we are self-thinking subjects, we are autonomous eyes that are, you know, somehow related to one another, but we are to, you know, use our talents and our gifts to create, you know, knowledge is power idea. So we created this world of stuff, all organized for our power and benefit. And we find ourselves now on the brink of an unsustainable future because basically I think we've come apart as humans. We've come apart in a sense as persons and we've come apart separated like a, like a, a yoke from its, from its whites, you know? We have come separated from the earth. I think added to that, if I could just put one more strain in here of the separation is we've had this kind of strain of Neoplatonic thinking. And, and by that, just very shorthand, I mean, Platonic thinking means the best is not here. The, the, truth, the truth of things is really in a world beyond. You know, that this world is okay, but really it's there, wherever there is, that has the best of what I long for. And again, that kind of Platonic thinking that has filtered in or wired in to our, to our religious thinking has left us turned away from the earth, turned toward, you know, another world. Now, um, one of my heroes going forth uh, in our contemporary world is the Jesuit scientist Pierre Teilhard de Jardin. He was a scientist who was a Jesuit and, and therefore his deep Ignatian spirituality influenced, in a sense, how he saw his scientific data and how he interpreted what science was saying. But at one point he said the artificial separation between humans and cosmos, the artificial separation between human persons and the cosmos, he said, is at the root of our contemporary moral confusion. In other words, Religion is deeply tied to cosmology. When the cosmology changes, if religion doesn't change, it loses its living power. And he says that separation has left us adrift. We have no sense of where we're going as science discloses to us 
a very new universe. And so Teilhard really grapples then with the universe we actually live in. It is a Big Bang cosmos that, that's very old. If you're feeling old this evening, think of the cosmos. It's about 14 billion years old. It has a long story to it, and we humans emerge out of a long, long process of evolving life. Life that has had cataclysmic events along the way, but biological life that continues in the direction of increasing complexity and consciousness. I mean, we would have to just stand in awe and marvel that after 13.8 billion years, we are here and able to think about the cosmos that has given rise to us. So that's really astounding. The second is that at the fundamental level, we don't live really in Newton's world, maybe on some level we do, but the fundamental levels of stuff of life, what we call matter, we know it's not just little billiard balls or little atoms clinking together. We know that quantum physics tells us that the basic stuff of life is energy. And that we are deeply connected through fields and fields of energy. So that the physicist Paul Dirac said in one of his talks, pick a flower on Earth and you move the farthest star. In other words, what we are realizing today is we are so deeply interconnected that our actions, even what seems like a trivial action, can have far-reaching effects. And now we're finding the same with even our thoughts, that consciousness now is um, part of this you know, universe, so that even our thoughts can have effects around the globe. And it just seems so incredible to us. But as David Bohm, a contemporary Einstein, said, as human beings and societies, we seem separate. We seem separate. We seem like separate religions and separate cultures and separate tribes. But Bohm said, in our cosmic roots, we are part of an indivisible whole, and we share in the same cosmic process. That means whether we're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Russian, Chinese, from wherever we are, it's as if we were to take this you know, fabric of the universe and turn it inside out, we would see one you know, strands of interlocking fields of connectivity. What is the problem here? We don't think, we are not even aware of this. We have no consciousness of connectivity because we have been so wired to think in compartmentalized cosmological ways. Added to that is that we now know ourselves to be in evolution. By evolution, and that's still a word that some people find very difficult, almost off-putting. You know, like it makes us not special anymore if we're sort of from evolution. But what we're saying by evolution is that life unfolds from simple to complex. You know, that given sufficient amount of time, new things will happen. 
I mean, we are here. <laughs> so we're sort of proof to that evolution really happens. And what, what Teilhard said is evolution is the rise of consciousness. As things come together, as they complexify, consciousness deepens. And so we live in a world that is evolving. It's changing. It's forming new levels of relationships. I think technology is our greatest evolver today. I mean, 30 years ago, we would not have talked about world religions or a globe in the way that we do today because we now have a new awareness of belonging together that we've never had before. So we have evolved. Uh, now, what Teilhard adds to this, he says, Christianity can no longer remain with its old forms of, you might say, its old construct. It must, in a sense, engage the new science if it is to have any credibility. I think this is important, and, and let me just put it this way. Pope Francis is calling for dialogue between science and religion. Well, we've had dialogue for years, really. We've been talking for a long time. You know, and dialogue, well, let me hear what you're saying. Oh, that's very nice, and here's what I did. That's very nice, too. Uh, what, what Teilhard says is we've got to go beyond dialogue. What we need is a new integration of science and religion. Because these are two ways of understanding the one world that is our world. And basically, that's what Teilhard did. He sought to, you might say, understand Christianity within now the framework of evolution. And he says we must revisit our core doctrines. And that's what he tried to do in his own way. He said, for one thing, We've thought too much of God as this distant, you know, uh, first cause, you know, like a God who's up there who says, let there be light, and puts it all into motion. He says, evolution impels us to think of God from the future. A God who's already, you might say, that future, and drawing us from the future into new life. He also speaks of God as the Omega, the God who is within the God who is empowering this evolutionary creation into new life. And so a God within and a God ahead allows Teilhard then to talk about this evolutionary universe, the whole thing, as the birthing of the Christ. And that strikes most of us like, huh? I was following you up to there, but evolution as the birthing of, of the Christ, really? What are we talking about here? We are saying that there's no aspect of this natural process of evolution that does not have God within it. That's what we're saying. That God is in leptons and hadrons and quarks and cells and bumblebees and amoebas to cells to, to um, primates to human persons. The whole thing is incarnation. And so Terence says that Christ is coming to birth all along the way. So that when Jesus comes, I mean, Jesus is not some like, strange phenomenon. It says that the whole evolution now finds its voice and a consciousness in the person of Jesus. So when he says, I am the way, you know, I am the life, Jesus is in a sense pointing us to this is how we are to evolve. This is how we are to go forward. You know, if we are to move towards the fullness of life. 
Now, this is Teilhard, and I'm going to go back to Pope Francis. Teilhard says, we cannot be saved except in and through the universe. There is no salvation apart from creation. That's what we're saying here. We have separated out these things as like, oh, well, I'll do what I can, you know, to dispose my plastic cups. We have missed the deeper meaning of what it means now to, be, to talk about Christ in the world that God is creating. So if, if we are, no salvation without creation means that we will either go into the future together as a whole, a whole earth, a, a unified human community, or we will not go into the future, really, at all. And, you know, I, I have to say, because people ask me, do you think we can annihilate ourselves? Well, yes, I think we can. I do, I think we have that capacity to destroy our human life. But I don't think we have the capacity, nor will we destroy created life. I do believe that God is at the heart of his creation and that life, even if we go back to simple life form, and it will take another 14 billion years, you know, for intelligent life to emerge again, it is possible. So, here's where I might say Pope Francis in his encyclical raises the ante, he's a wake-up call, right? He's saying, okay, get with the program, kids, right? Because we're, we're, we're on the verge of crises, we cannot continue at, at the rate that we, are, that we are living. Our consumptive patterns are overly consumptive. Um, but we have no consciousness of where we're going. Because we have no consciousness of being in evolution and that God is in his evolution, seeking to rise up in and through us as the God of his creation. So I think we need a new awareness of how science and religion must work together for the good of the whole. In all honesty, we cannot continue on with science here and religion here. It's simply, it's at the heart, from my perspective, it's at the heart of our ecological demise. Um, how to bring them together is our challenge, because once we said that, you know, that what science is telling us about ourselves, now we need to understand our religious beliefs in light of that, what science is telling us. It means that things will change. How do we? Maybe we haven't been doing things up to now. And that's very challenging for us. So, let me just put this honestly. We're a little bit on the superficial level of things. <coughs> it's like saying, oh, guess what? Your cat's cancer, but we're hope it gets better. You have cancer, you need to go to the root to cut it out. And we need to go to the root of our ecological crisis, not to cut it out, but in sense to reclaim um, what the whole is that we're a part of. And so how do we get, how do we come to that kind of new consciousness of life and evolution? life of change, a life that's moving towards something. How do we begin to understand that God is at the heart of this life of evolution? If I can 
put it this way, here we are in great university, but think of how we educate. Because I'm a product of, of an education, but I was a science major. And I had very little to do with humanities. I, I tried to avoid them at all costs. Because I really thought that religion had really nothing to offer me. Science didn't really tell me the truth of things. And, and so, even today, we educate for hyper-specialized knowledge, right? Sciences are here, humanities or religion is here. Um, even within the sciences, you know, the sciences, if you're a, a biochemistry major, biochemistry is a large field, so you're Cell biologist, or you know, you specialize, you specialize, 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 so that by the time we're finished with our degrees, we have to maybe three or four people, right? And maybe two will read our books. Hype, we, we are hyper specialized people of individual talent with no consciousness of deep connectivity or how our discipline must be open to other disciplines for a fuller view. The sciences need religion to address some of the questions that science itself cannot ask, cannot address, questions of meaning and purpose. Religion needs science to get to a reality check. And so when we ask the question of home, it's a question of science and religion, okay, honestly. What science is telling us is there's one Big Bang universe and space-time is a dimension of this universe. There's no place above called heaven. Heaven is part and parcel of Earth. Earth and heaven are two sides of the same reality. And you may know, say that, you know, huh? Well, what happens when I die? Welcome to the whole. Uh, and so we need to, to rethink and reclaim what is, what is the real here. Because the fact is, we not only have a duty to the earth, we are earth beings. We need the earth, we need the earth probably more than it needs us. And, you know, what Pope Francis is saying that even sin, sin is not just human sin, what you did to your neighbor. Sin now belongs to the earth itself. To reject the earth, to be unconscious of our actions toward the earth, is a sin against God. That's what he's saying. Sin against nature is now a sin against God as well. So, our, our home question is a deep one. Uh, there's a saying from Bonaventure that uh, I've always um, liked to recall. And Bonaventure said, you truly exist where you love not merely where you live. And the question is, where do we find our true love? Where do we love? Because we have another saying that says, home is where the heart is. Home is where, where are our hearts? What grounds us in our being and gives us more being in life? Um, because we know that what we love and when we truly love, we will do everything we can to, to tend that love, to protect and care for it. And that's why we can say we love this home and do what we're doing to it. 
Um, there's something that's cognitively dissonant in that. So there is a, I think, um, I'll just give you Mark's here and then we'll bring you to close. Look for it to switch to St. Francis and Assisi. Well, that's my part, but St. Francis and Assisi did not wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'll write a canticle to Lord of Sun. Great idea. You know, that, that canticle is written one year before his death. After a long journey of suffering and then discipline, of feeling rejected at times by his own brothers, but of setting his heart on the total love of God. And I think the three pillars for Francis that lead him to that it's an inner space, it's an inner reality out of which that cancer emerges. The three critical of the three pillars of the differences are prayer. We need to define by who we are in our Who am I and who are you in terms of prayer? Prayer not saying prayer, but prayer is a deep dialogue with God. That we are not alone, that there is one other with us invites us unto new life. For St. Francis, poverty, not material poverty. For St. Francis, po poverty, gospel poverty, is living not without possessions, but without possessing. We possess, we hold on, we cling, we grasp, and therefore we have no inner space for something new to happen. And the third not, not the kind of superficial devotion, but that sense of deep relationality. That you and I are deeply related at some level. That we are deeply related to the things of this earth, to, to the things of nature. So Francis would call himself a brother, not as a title, but as a structure of relationship. But, you know, maybe I can say, we have work to do. We are on treadmills today. We are, we are information overloaded. We know that the human brain is exhausted. We know that we have all this information coming into us, and we can't process it all. So we have brain fatigue. This is a syndrome that, that psychologists are now pointing to. Um, we are completely plugged in at all times. You know, so... It's like a day without my cell phone is a day lost, you know. So we need we need to reclaim the inner space of being. And here I'm going to say this: I don't think it's all in the energy, the ecological crisis, or the energy crisis is a matter of doing. It is first a matter of being. If we are at home with ourselves, we will be at home in this creation. to build, to, to um, keep going, going, going. Um, and therefore, I think we need sort of like, we need these of solitude. We need cyber fast. We need to unplug and just be, just to sit. We have a hard time doing that. Um, I do think we need to begin to think in a new way. Our thinking is so compartmentalized that we, we don't think in a way that unifies. But Teilhard thought that thinking is essential to 
this. Um, Bonaventure in the 13th century had a great sense of the whole person alive in the wholer that God is loving into being at every moment. And in his classic text, The Soul's Journey, he, he says this. He said, therefore any person who is not illumined by such great splendor in created things is blind. Anyone who is not awakened by such great outcries is deaf. Anyone who is not led by such effects to give praise to God is mute. Anyone who does not turn to the first principle, God, as a result, result of such signs is a fool. Imagine that Bonaventure calling someone else a fool. So he says, therefore, open your eyes alert your spiritual ears, unlock your lips, and apply your heart so that in all creatures you may see, hear, praise, love, and adore, magnify, and honor your God, lest the entire world rise up against you. 